Hi, I'm Michael Sunoff, founder and CEO of HardToFindSeminars.com. For the last five years, I've interviewed the world's best business and marketing minds. Along the way, I've created a successful publishing business, all from home, from my two-car garage. When my first child was born, he was very sick, and it was then that I knew I had to have a business that I could operate from home. Now my challenge is to build the world's largest free resource for online downloadable MP3 audio business interviews. I knew I needed a site that contained strategies, solutions, and inside angles to help you live better, to save and make more money, to stay healthier, and to get more out of life. I've learned a lot in the last five years, and today I'm going to show you the skills you need to survive. I went to a book called The Red Book, The Standard Directory of Advertising Agencies. Since I was the advertising manager of an industrial company, I sent a one-page sales letter to 500 creative directors at 500 different advertising agencies who, in the Red Book, indicated that they had one or more industrial-type accounts, and that's how I started. Hi, it's Michael Sinoff with Michael Sinoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. Here is a two-hour interview with master copywriter Bob Bly. I grilled Bob with questions from my HardToFindSeminars.com subscribers on the inside secrets of the copywriting business. Bob Bly is an independent copywriter and consultant with more than 25 years' experience in business-to-business, high-tech, industrial, and direct marketing. McGraw-Hill calls Bob Bly America's top copywriter. He is the author of what many consider to be the Bible of copywriting, the Copywriter's Handbook. The legendary David Ogilvy says, I don't know a single copywriter whose work would not be improved by reading this book, and that includes me. Bob Bly writes sales letters, direct mail packages, magalogs, email marketing, ads, brochures, articles, press releases, web pages, white papers, catalogs, and other marketing materials clients need to sell their products and services to businesses and direct response buyers. Most copywriters out there today have at best only a few years of experience and are not yet masters of their craft. Bob has been writing winning promotions for top clients like Boardroom, IBM, Intuit, Ken Roberts Company, Swiss Bank, Nortel Networks, Paxar, and dozens of other companies for over a quarter of a century. Yes, there are a few other senior copywriters you can hire today but Bob does something many of them do not. He writes all of his own copy. He doesn't hire junior copywriters to work on your promotions. If he takes on your job, you know that every word in your promotion was written by Bob Bly, an advantage not available from any other source. This may be your only chance to get answers from one of the best copywriters around. So hang on and get ready and let's get going. Bob Bly speaking. Good morning, Bob. Mike Sinoff. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? Good. You have a good weekend? I did. So we're going to be answering exactly what the marketers and the copywriters want to know. Bob, the first question is from John Rustoldi in Norway, and he wants to know, how did you set up your copywriting business in the early days, and how did you get your first assignments? Did you do any spec work to get testimonials? And this was one of the most common questions that I got from people, and I think it goes back to the fear that copywriters don't have credibility and they believe they need testimonials from others 
just to prove their credibility. How would you answer that? Well, I wasn't smart enough to think that way. So when I started, I had no testimonials. I had worked in corporate America, in the corporate world, in junior level advertising manager type positions for a couple of years for two different companies. So when I went into copywriting, I still had a job. Were these newsletter publishers? No, not at all. The first one was Westinghouse Electronics and Aerospace. My division made radars, like you go to the airport and you see a radar, that's what we made. And the second company was an engineering firm that made equipment for chemical plants. So what were you doing in relation to advertising with them? Well, all those types of companies have to advertise. And I was managing their advertising program. It's a job at the engineering firm. For example, we would run ads in trade journals. And we had an ad agency who created those ads, and I managed their work. And this was in the early 80s. When an engineer would respond to one of those ads, they'd want some technical sales literature. So I would actually write it, and I'd have a hire a designer to design it, and then we print it and mail it out. We also did a lot of marketing and trade shows. So we had to create exhibits and set those up at various trade shows. So I still had that job. And what I did is I was real simple-minded about it. I went to a book called The Red Book, The Standard Directory of Advertising Agencies. Since I was the advertising manager of an industrial company, I sent a one-page sales letter to 500 creative directors at 500 different advertising agencies who, in the Red Book, indicated that they had one or more industrial-type accounts. And that's how I started. What did your offer basically say? The letter is reprinted in full in my book, Secrets of a Freelance Writer, but the headline was, How an Engineer and Ad Manager Can Help You Write Better Ads and Brochures. And the letter basically said, I'm a freelance copywriter specializing in industrial advertising, and I will write your ads or brochures or whatever else you need, and if you'd like to get a copywriting information kit, more information about my services, and some samples of my work, and again, this is before the web, so you couldn't send them to a website, just mail back the enclosed reply card, and I'll send it to you. That was the offer. Were you a student of advertising at that time? Were you studying Caples or Eugene Schwartz or any of these guys? I started out being more a student of writing. I was interested in writing per se. At that time, which was I guess 1980-81, what happened is when I got this job at the engineering firm, the first day I was there, my boss walked in and he said, I get some marketing magazines. I don't read them. Here they are. If you want to read them, if not, throw them out. And it was direct marketing in there. And prior to that, I had not been exposed to Cables, Ogilvy, and the direct marketing mindset. I came from a technical background. I'm a chemical engineer by training. I worked for technical companies. We didn't practice any of these principles. I'm sure my bosses were unaware of all of these things, but then I read articles in direct marketing that were written by some of the then top copywriters and agency people and direct marketers, and then I got very interested and began to get my hand on everything I could find. This was at the time in New York City, and this was before Amazon, so I went to the Strand Bookstore and all the old bookstores in New York City, and I would hunt up these books, and on a Saturday, that was my great excitement. I'd be banging around these bargain bins. I still have it today. I found an original hardcover of Claude Hopkins Scientific Advertising. Oh, wow. For a dollar. Now you can download it free on the internet, but then it was such a treasure. Like everyone listening to this program, I would read and study it. It was like a kid in the candy store. When I found one of those, I immediately went out and bought Ogilvy on advertising, Confessions of an Advertising Man. Back then, Prentice Hall had in print the original Caples books. I bought and read all the Caples books, so I was getting very much into it. And my interest was shifting from pure writing, which was always an interest, to direct marketing and advertising. So I would answer yes, but I was a beginning student. So what happened? I'm sure you remember you mailed out 500 letters. I, mean, I remember exactly. I mailed out 500, and within four or five weeks, I had 35 people respond, which was a 
97% response, and I was on my way. You know, I had 35 people who were interested in learning to some degree about my copywriting services, and I began to respond to those as best I could in my limited time since I was already employed, and they began to become clients. So how was your confidence level at that time as a writer, and compare that to with what you would charge then and then now? I mean, did you have the confidence to charge a hefty fee back then? No, my strategy, which was probably a huge mistake in retrospect, I charged a very low fee. My logic was, I'm a beginner, so I will charge low fees to get the business. I was not as sophisticated as many of the people listening to this today who would say, hey, you charge a low fee, people perceive you as a low value. I thought, what's going to work? A low price. So I charged very little money. It's not that I wasn't confident. I thought I could because I was going after mainly industrial accounts. I knew how to write industrial copy. I was confident I could do the work. Yeah, so when you worked it out per hour, you had your time and you had one fee. You weren't making anything on the back end on these accounts. None of these accounts paid anything on the back end. So what I would say is that I didn't really calculate the hour, but to give you an idea, my last full year of employment was 1981, and back then I was earning, I think, 27 or 28 or $29,000 a year, which was not a bad salary then. It's not a lot, but I was a couple of years out of school and my early 20s, and so I was earning 28, 29,000 a year. And my first year of full-time freelancing, which was 82, in which I actually worked 10 months because I started at the end of February, I grossed $39,000 a year. What do you love about copywriting? You just love the work? There's a lot of things I love about it, but I would say if I listed the top two or three, I love the actual work. It is interesting. I need to be intellectually stimulated by my work, and it's at the right level for me. Designing cyclotrons for fusion reactions would be too high a level for me. It would be too difficult. I wouldn't be stimulated. I'd go blank because I couldn't do it. There are other jobs that I've had that were too little stimulus, like being an advertising manager to me was largely boring. You know, placing insertion orders and doing forecasting and putting together a budget and a plan and going in meetings and going to trade shows, it bored me. So copywriting gave me intellectual stimulation. My great driver in life actually is to not be bored at work, and that's why it's perfect for me. I'm never bored at it. The second thing I like about it is the whole lifestyle. I mean, I'm talking to you, and I'm alone in my third floor office in an office building in northern New Jersey, and there's no one up here, and it's totally quiet, and it's just the way I liked it. I really didn't like when I worked in the corporate world. You hear the knock on the door. And they say, can you come in for about a half hour? We're going to talk about the widget. Get the hell away from me. I don't want to talk to you. I want to do my work and be left alone. And here I can. I mean, I do have people who work for me, but we have a virtual office. They're not here. I had to do a revision of a package this morning, and I finished it just before you called. And I just wanted to work on that and nothing else. So I got three, four calls, and I didn't pick them up. I see caller ID. I said, hmm, I don't have to take that, and I'll call them back this afternoon. Describe your office. Are you a one-man office, or you have a staff? Here's my situation. I don't actually have employees, but I do have a lot of people that work for me, freelancers. Let me go over the setup. I have an office. It's in a rented office building in Bergen County, New Jersey. It's about nine, ten miles from my house. And I'm on the third floor, and it's isolated. It's a pretty nice space. It's not a fancy building, but it's a nice big office in here. It's real comfortable. And I have a bunch of different people who work for me part-time. They're probably the equivalent of one and a half to two full-time people. This isn't related to my copywriting, but I have a publishing company, and we sell information 
distribution products online, like a lot of people do today. And I have someone part-time who handles that. She handles everything. If I need a landing page put up, I don't call the web designer. I give her the copy and say, go get it designed. If you told me tomorrow, hey, I want you to promote my product as an affiliate to your list, I'd say, go have your affiliate manager call Jody, my affiliate manager, and handles all this. So I have her. I have someone from my copywriting business, my project manager. She handles all incoming leads and inquiries because we get a lot of them and I don't have time to talk to them. Pertaining to leads, another question from John is, what kind of lead generating system did you use in the early days from that direct mail? Was everything referral or were you out there cold call prospecting for new business? In the early days, for better or worse, and it's probably stupid on my part, I never made cold calls. What I did in the beginning is I did two things, only two things, and that's what worked for me. I sent out sales letters. These were one-page sales letters with a reply card in a number 10 envelope, and I would get lists of advertising managers, and I would mail them this letter. And the first time I did it, I mentioned I got a 7% response. Then I rewrote it a bit and got it up to 10%. If I had a list, and lists were easy to get and they still are, anytime I needed business, I could send out just 100 letters and have 10 good leads. So you knocked on doors with direct mail? With direct mail. Yeah, I didn't cold call people. I sent to people I did not know with direct mail. And the second thing I did, I wrote articles for trade publications. At the time, the leading trade publication for industrial marketing was actually called industrial marketing. Then it became business marketing a year after. And I tried to get in there to write articles, and finally I did. And I must have had a dozen articles published in there over a two or three year period. That combined with the direct mail is mainly how I generated business. And your articles were on copywriting? Were on copywriting or some aspect of industrial marketing. And you got to put your tag on at the end? Yeah, now Again, this is before the internet. You couldn't put your website address, you couldn't put your email address, but you could put your tagline and say Bob Lai is a freelance copywriter in at the time I was in a different town in Dumont, New Jersey. I can't remember if he let us put the phone number in or not. But see that was a big bugaboo back then. You would write these articles and you'd want to promote yourself and you'd put the phone number in and the editor wouldn't include it because he thought it was an act of self promotion. But in the internet they encourage you to put your email address and your website address. So now articles are more effective than they were back then and you can get more business from them, but they were still very effective back then. Okay, so in retrospect, compared to how you started with your example of the letter, this question's come up over and over again. What's the first thing I should do as a freelance copywriter to get clients? Here's what I would do if I were starting today, and it's hard to give you one first thing, so if I had to give you the first two or three things, number one, decide what your market is and what your specialty is. As a rule of thumb, you're better when you're starting off to specialize than to be a generalist. And there were all kinds of specialties. So if you edited the newsletter for the Cerebral Palsy Foundation or the Red Cross, maybe you should start with fundraising, nonprofit, and make that your specialty. The first thing I would do is decide what niche do I want to work in, what type of services do I want to provide. Before we move on to that, because this question came up as well, what, in your opinion, are the best niches and the most lucrative niches to approach? Any advice on that? I will give you some of them. First of all, direct response in itself is a niche. Now, maybe every one of your audience is into direct response, but, you know, there's a huge world outside of direct marketing, and the majority of people in the world who go into advertising don't want to do direct marketing. They want to be on Madison Avenue writing the next Super Bowl TV commercial. So the better field is not to do that. Direct marketing is a good niche. Online marketing is a good niche to write online copywriting. 
Within those fields, information publishing is a good niche. The highest paid niche is probably writing promotions, direct mail and online, for consumer newsletters. That is basically travel, health, and investment newsletters. Those guys pay more than just about anyone. Another good niche is writing for healthcare, particularly alternative medicine, nutritional supplements. Although, and this is not direct marketing, pharmaceutical and medical advertising is a very lucrative niche. That's another good area. Speech writing, another non-direct marketing area in which I've done very little work, is a very well-paying niche. And I would say then direct marketing of information products in general, not just newsletters, which is almost a separate niche, but audio tapes, audio learning systems, seminars, conferences, that's a good niche. High-tech direct marketing, particularly software, is a very good niche. Writing about software, IT products and systems, that's a good niche. And business-to-business is a good niche today. Okay, let's go on to your track on what you would advise someone to do a beginning copywriter. Pick a niche, which means what type of service or product are you covering, what industry, and also what are you writing for them. If you pick computers, you're writing only data sheets, so you're writing websites, you know, what are you going to write for these clients? Second thing I would do is I would go find and identify good lists of prospects in those areas. Maybe there's a trade association that has a local chapter where you live that you should go to and network at and become a member of. Maybe there's a newsletter or a magazine subscription list you should be renting. Identify how you're going to reach these people. If you determine that, say, hey, my market is marketing directors of pharmaceutical companies, to reach them, you need a list, and there are lists. So you've got to identify and find and get your hands on the list. The third thing I would do is I would contact them, and guess what? Direct mail is still very, very effective. There are other methods that people advocate today. You will hear some people say, oh, it doesn't work, but it does work. If I were starting out today, that would still be the first thing I'd do. I'd compose a really good lead-generating sales letter to generate inquiries for my copywriting services and then mail 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 to a list of prospects in my market and then wait four or five weeks and see. I mean, I do other things during those four or five weeks, but see what happens. If that letter works and you can get a one, two, three, four, five percent response, you're going to be able to fill the pipeline with leads, and if they're good leads, a percentage of them is going to reliably convert to business and you'll be set. Yeah, you'll never need to cold prospect again or worry about referrals. Absolutely. By the way, referrals, I think, are a great way of marketing, and I encourage people to do that, but you're right. If you can generate a steady flow of sales leads, I call it a lead-generating machine, and you can create a sales letter that every time you mail 100, you get three good leads or five or two you're really not going to ever have to worry about having business as long as there are sufficient lists. Your market is broad enough. If you told me, I want to specialize in writing copy for people that are breeders of Asian cats, then you have a problem because I don't know that those people hire copywriters and it's a pretty small list if there is one. But if your market is newsletter publishers, it's easy for me to help you find a big directory of lots of newsletter publishers. Yeah, it should be a prerequisite because if you can't generate leads for your own copywriting business and you're going into the copywriting business to generate sales and leads for other companies, what's the point? Exactly. That you should do it first for your own business to prove that you'll be able to do it for other businesses. Yeah, maybe your lead machine is something different. You can do it online, for example. But you need at least one promotion that every time you dump it in the mail or turn it on, you get back a reliable, consistent number of leads. And I actually talk about this on one of my product sites, www.theleadmachineonline.com, which is all about how to generate sales leads.
Here's a question from Kai Tan. What kind of books, Bob, magazines, books, periodicals, and journals do you currently read for inspiration and for writing? I read a lot, and I think most copywriters who are successful, not all of them, I know a couple who don't, most of them are big readers. So in terms of books, I read very broadly. I read lots of books on business, marketing, copywriting, writing, and advertising. I read lots of nonfiction books on a variety of subjects, and I also read fiction. And in terms of publications, again, I read a lot of different publications online and offline. For example, I have a lot of clients in IT, information technology, so I read Information Week. That's a good publication to read to keep up with that. Computer World is another one. In general, business, what I do is I always rotate them. Right now, I'm getting Fortune magazine. In a year, I may let go of that and get something else. I tend to vary it a little bit. Every copywriter who's in direct response should order at least one publication from most of the major direct marketing publishers, like Boardroom and Phyllis Publishing. And so I always get at least one thing from one of them, because if you do that, then all their promotions are going to flow to you, and you can see what they're doing in the mail and online. He also asked, what kind of mental, emotional, and spiritual exercise or mind power meditation does Bob do to obtain his creative juices for writing his copy content? I have to admit, I don't do two things that everyone says you should do. The first is what you just described. I don't do any kind of meditation, and the reason I don't do that is because that sounds like you have to rev yourself up to do it. I don't have to rev myself up. When I wake up in the morning, I want to come here because I enjoy it so much. So I don't really do anything deliberate. There is one thing I do, but it's different than what he suggested. I tend to work on a lot of projects rather than one or two projects. And the reason I do that, and this is a trick I got from Isaac Asimov, not personally, but something he wrote. He's who is he? Isaac Asimov is a science fiction writer and science writer who had the record of being one of the most prolific authors of the 20th century. He wrote and published about 480 books during his lifetime sometimes as many as one a month or more. And I just liked him. He's sort of my role model for a very productive writer. And he said the key is not to try to pump yourself up, but work on a lot of different projects. And the reason that works is because if you get tired of one, you can move on to the other. Like if you're only writing a promotion, let's say, for a product that you're selling, and that's all you have to do in terms of writing, you might have other things you have to do, but that's your big copywriting. You only have two things to do. If you burn out on those today, what else are you going to work on? But I always keep a large number of projects. And in different fields. So if I get tired of writing a big direct mail package like I did this morning, I won't go back to direct mail. I'll go to a landing page. So give me an example. How many client copywriting projects do you currently have? Probably around 15, 16. Do you set the deadlines where the stress and the pressure of deadlines don't kill you? Or? I try to do that. It's not always possible because my demand is very high. Theoretically, I would like to schedule projects so the deadlines were always convenient for me. You can't always do that, but I try. Yet, I would say that I personally am under a lot of deadline pressure. It's probably the biggest negative of my existence is the way I've set my life up is that there is constant deadline pressure. And I don't dislike it as a rule, but sometimes you can get weary of it, and that's always a danger. But Having the multiple projects helps you get through everything. Yeah, and also the diversity or the variety of projects. You know, they're not all direct mail packages. They're not all email marketing messages. There are many different things in many different industries. So if I just say, ah, oh, God, I'm sick of talking about the stock market today, I'll go write a white paper for a computer company on cybersecurity, or I'll write a white paper on wastewater processing or whatever it is. Where do you draw the line? Will you take a project that bores you or that you don't believe in? I don't take any project that 
that bores me because one of my primary drivers is I don't want to be bored. And I don't take any project that I strongly disbelieve in. Like there might be a project for a financial newsletter. When I first see it, I'm not convinced that it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. But I know that if I study it and take it on, I'll be able to get what I call temporarily enthusiastic in order to write a good package. But if it's something that's distasteful to me, like for example, I've never in 25 years or more of copywriting written a sweepstakes. It's not because I'm against them or I think they're immoral or unethical, but I personally hate them. I don't see why anyone looks at them. And that doesn't mean they don't work, but I wouldn't be able to do a good job. So I tell clients they're not in my repertoire. I can give you the name of someone else who can do it for you. Okay. Here's a question from Paul. He says, certainly long copy outpulls short copy as long as it's interesting. How does Bob keep his readers entertained through the long copy? Well, let me just back up. I don't actually agree with his statement if he's saying long copy always outpulls short copy. It does not, and I'll give you proof. You've noticed in direct mail, for example, for magazines, which is an information product, what's the most popular mailing format? It's that voucher, right? Open up the envelope, it looks like an invoice. That's extremely short copy, and that's beating four-page letters in traditional packages. Are those on soft offers? They're on soft offers, yeah. Normally, if you're selling an information product to a consumer on a hard offer, normally long copy works better, but not always. So there are tools that I teach and have, and some of them are on my website, for determining copy length. One of them is called the copy length grid, which I could go into later if you want. The statement isn't true. It doesn't always. You could say it often outpulls it, but it doesn't always. And that's one of the things you certainly can test. But when you are writing long copy, there are a number of devices or tricks you use to make it interesting. But the one that's not a trick and is just overriding is totally understanding your prospect. Often copy gets boring because you're packing in information. The client gave you a bunch of source material, and it all looks credible and interesting, so you're packing it in. But you're not really thinking about the reader is always more interested in themselves than in you. So you're not thinking about, well, if I was this person, let's say you're writing a package to sell a medical magazine to pediatricians. Well, I'm not a pediatrician, so I had to talk to a bunch of pediatricians, and what are they interested in? The lay copywriter might have been tempted to talk about cute little kids, and they're so adorable, but maybe Maybe that's not what motivates a pediatrician. Well, let's do this. Why don't we take that as a case study? So right. last year you got that assignment. Was it to create a direct mail piece? It was a direct mail package to sell some newsletter for pediatricians. All right, so you took on the project. So for the listeners, take us through your process of how you handle a project. You accepted the project, and before you go into exactly what you did on the research, what are you thinking in terms of what are you going to charge? Do you ask for back end? Do you make money on pieces mailed? How do you structure? Sure well, the let's money talk part about of it. that. You're really talking about fees. Yeah. So at this point, here's what I do for fees. I have two standard fee schedules. One is for online copywriting. One is for offline copywriting. Basically, if I get an inquiry, I say to the person, I will email you the PDF of my fee schedule or schedules, depending what they want. When they have it, I'll point out the item they want on it and what the price is. And if they can pay it, I'll do it, provided they can wait long enough, which is often not the case. Is it always the same, or will you customize it for each project? The answer is it's pretty much the same. If my fee schedule lists $10,000 for a direct mail package and someone tells me his budget, it is $500. I don't go okay. But it basically depends on the nature and the complexity of the project. You know, I did a direct mail package for a guy a year ago. His product was a telephone answering service for small businesses. There's no complexity in that. It took a certain creativity to do a package that was good, but to understand it is pretty simple versus someone could want a direct mail package with 
the same number of components of the same length on something to do with complying with HIPAA Regulation 72.5.0. That might be very difficult for me to understand or take a lot of study, so the fee for that would be more than the other one. All right, so you mail your fee schedule. Yeah, I give them my fee schedule. I point out what the fee is, and if they have the budget and the time to wait and I'm interested and they want to go ahead, I'll book it. I send them a little confirmation, which they have to okay and send back with a check for half, and then it's booked. And if they don't, we let the time go. So currently, how far are you booking ahead of time? I do have some projects that will book four or five months ahead of time, but normally I'm booked solid or 99% solid because, you know, you can always choose to give up Sunday. But I'm booked normally pretty solid three to four months in advance. All right, let's go back to the magazine for the physician. So you took on that project. Now you've got a project in front of you. The time has come. You've got to get to work. What's the first thing you're going to do if you don't know much about what physicians want? How are you handling your research? Here's what I'll do. I'll do it in two or three ways. First, there will be various facts that I want to know that the client maybe can't tell me. Like I want to know how much money does a physician earn per year compared to a general practitioner, an internist, an oral surgeon. And it happens pediatricians, their earnings are on the lower end of the doctor scale. How much did they earn 20 years ago? So there will be some factual things that the client doesn't have. Those I'll just give to my researcher. I have someone who works for me on a freelance basis, so I'll make a list of five, six, seven questions, email it to her, and within 48 hours I'll get back all the research documented with sources. Then I'll have more of the emotional questions, which are, do pediatricians really love kids or do they just like kids and happen to go into the specialty for some other reason? Do pediatricians who my research shows don't earn as much as other doctors, do they resent it? Do pediatricians, like other doctors, resent managed care? Is it ruining their lives? I'll ask the emotional questions. And I'll definitely ask the client who will probably find someone like their editor of their magazine to speak to me. And I may be satisfied with those answers or I may get the feeling that the editor really doesn't know, in which case I'll say, can you give me the names of three to six subscribers who I could talk to for 15 minutes or 10 minutes with a doctor? It usually has to be shorter rather than longer to ask a few questions. And then I'll do that. So you intuitively or over the years and experience knew to ask emotional questions. And there's probably a very good reason for that. So what would you tell the listeners? Why are you looking for emotional questions? And from someone who maybe doesn't have your experience, you know it through experience, but what advice could you give for a copywriter to look for those important emotional questions and why are they going to be important in your company? The reason they're important, one of my clients once told me, you reach people on three levels. The weakest level, which is where most copywriters try to reach them, is factual, intellectual, you know, to write a letter that says, Dear Pediatrician, would you like to know how 20,000 of your fellow pediatricians are keeping current with the industry today? Then read Pediatrician Today. That's intellectual or factual. The much stronger level is what you said, emotional. If you can get to something that has an emotional resonance from them, that will be many times stronger. And then slightly above that is actually a variant of emotional is what we would call personal. In other words, emotional, let's say we're doing fundraising. Emotional is, here's Timmy. Timmy has cancer. That's very emotional. That'll really grab you. But personal is, Here's Timmy. Timmy has cancer. And did you know that within your lifetime, your chances of you or someone in your family getting cancer are one out of three? In other words, related to you personally. Clayton Makepeace, who, who publishes the Total Package, a great newsletter on copywriting, and who is one of the great copywriters of all time, says that if you can tap your lead of your promotion into the dominant, resonant emotion 
what is the person feeling right now, your chances of success are much greater. Your lead meaning your headline? In your headline and the beginning of your piece. Normally the emotion actually isn't in the headline. The headline is a device really to get them to read the lead, and the lead is where you can start to get into the emotional issue of it. That answers that on why you're choosing emotional questions, because that's the most powerful part. Okay, so we're still on the track of research on what you're going to do with your client. So you know these questions to ask, like for the magazine you wrote, did you actually talk to physicians for part of your research? I talked to the editor, I talked to my client, and I talked to a couple of physicians. They were hard to get, and they were very reticent to get physicians, so I spoke to one of their subscribers, and I spoke to my child's pediatrician. And they were hard to get, so you take what you can get. Do you record the calls when you talk to them? I don't them? record them. I'm a very fast typist, and I take notes on the keyboard. I got you. Okay. Occasionally for certain projects I will record but not usually I record when I want to quote them verbatim in the written piece which I don't want to do in these interviews I want to gain an understanding of what they're thinking now what I've done before I've done these interviews is I've given the client a list of stuff that I want to review and I've already reviewed it and that list includes let's say it's a magazine their control mailing piece a bunch of their past and recent test mailings so I can see what's worked and what hasn't at least a year's worth of issues if it's a monthly magazine and if they have a file of subscriber testimonials I want that so as you're reading and waiting through all this content are you taking notes yeah I'm taking notes in word single spaced on my computer so after I do all this and then have the interviews I might print that out, I might have nine single space pages of notes, I might have 19 single space pages of notes. So you're categorizing it? What I will do is, in many cases, I will print it out and start clipping it apart with a scissor and tape it onto large index cards. You know, I'll be reading my notes and if I read 10 lines that I see are on one topic and then it starts another, I stop, I clip that out, paste it on the index card and I write the name of that topic at the top of the card. So when I'm done, I have a stack of 50 or 60 index cards or whatever, however many, 20 or 40 that have all this content on them and are headed by category. Pediatrician compensation, dealing with terminal kids, dealing with kids' families, dealing with mothers, dealing with fathers, getting office space, malpractice insurance. And then I'll figure out some kind of rough outline at the computer on a piece of scrap paper. And when I have an outline I like, I will order the content on those cards in that order. And now I have all the information I need to write the package in the order that I need it. All right, let's move on to another question. Here's a question from Andrew Cavanaugh. He's a health writer out of Australia. He says, Bob, where does most of your income come from today? Writing copy for clients or selling your own information products? My income is 90% or more writing copy for clients. I am not really primarily an information marketer, although I do have products that I sell online. But I'd say over 90%, maybe 85%. Most of it, I am a traditional freelance copywriter, what people call a contract copywriter. That is how I spend almost all of my time. Okay, here's a question from Sherry Fields. Bob, before you became well-known, what did you do to convince clients to take a chance on you? Well, here's one strategy that I use. You know, I mentioned writing articles. After the articles, I wrote books on marketing. And I'll give you a perfect example. I had a guy years ago from IBM call me and said, I need you to give a seminar on business-to-business -business marketing to my marketing people. And he was at a division of IBM, and he had like 20 or 25 people. And he said, what would you charge to come for two days? And I quoted him a fee. He goes, well, you know what? That's higher than some, lower than others, but it's higher than a bunch of others. There are a lot of people out there who do this. Why should I have you instead of them? 
And I said, I'll tell you what, give me your address, I'll FedEx you my new book. I just had a book come out called Business to Business Direct Marketing, published by NTC Business Book. I said, I'll FedEx you the book, and you look at it. If you think they're better or they can do the job as well, call them, don't bother to call me back. If you read my book and you think I'm the guy for you, you call me back. So one of the ways I prove credibility, and it was real helpful, is to write books and articles. The other way is when anybody was interested in my service, and again, this is before the Internet, I would offer them a copywriting information kit. And one of the things in that kit was a typed list of two or three pages of testimonials from clients that I had done work for. This was fairly at the beginning of my career, but any time I had a client that liked what I did, I said, would you mind sending me a short letter? And this was before email. Some people would be willing and some people, because it was work, didn't bother. But I would get whatever I could and I would type them onto a sheet of paper and mail it out. And so people would see that and they look at my copywriting information and they say, well, look at all these testimonials. He must be good. And that gave them confidence. I had more clients that didn't give me testimonials. Not everyone will. I typed their names on another sheet of paper alphabetically just to list the clients and the products they made. And it was a client list. And I included that as a separate page. And people would look at that and say, well, oh, look, there's 22 companies on this client list. And you know, hey, we're industrial manufacturers, and eight of them are industrial manufacturers. That also gave them confidence. Right. How about for the guy just starting? He's got no clients. Would you recommend doing some free work just to hopefully gain additional work, or do you recommend always taking some kind of fee to know that your prospect's qualified up front? What would you recommend? Here's what my advice always is. I'd say the first thing you need and that you should concentrate on is getting three satisfied clients and three projects. So, therefore, you want to get however you can get them. If it's on spec, do it on spec. If it's for a fee, do it for a fee. If it's for Uncle Ned, who has a dry cleaning store and he'll let you write his neighborhood door hanger, do it for Uncle Ned. Get three samples from three different clients who will write you three different testimonials and act as three different references. Then you can go out to other people confidently, and when they say, well, can you give me the name of your clients? You go, well, I've done work for A, B, and C, among other companies. You can send them three samples, and you can have three testimonials in your letter. And people don't need to see a lot of samples or testimonials to hire you, but they do need something. And once you have those three real samples, you'll feel much more confident. And in the beginning, you do anything you can. If you try to get a fee, it goes, no, nah, I want you to do it on spec, do it on spec. This is a question from Ron Haynes, and it says, which of your books on Copywriting, do you most highly recommend for freelance copywriters just starting out? There's two books. If you want to learn how to write copy, I recommend The Copywriter's Handbook, which has just come out in the revised third edition. Was that one of your first books? Yeah, it was early. It was in 1985, so it was, you know, maybe my fifth or sixth book. The other book is Secrets of a Freelance Writer. That doesn't tell you how to write copy. That tells you how to succeed in the copywriting business. Those are the two books that most people who come to me and are getting into copywriting buy and use. Okay, and how many books do you have total? A lot of my books have nothing to do with marketing. At this point, I guess I have 70 books. 70 books? Yes. Is that all with that publisher? No, no, no. Different publishers will be interested in different things, so no. How many are you self-publishing? Books? None. They're all by regular publishers. They're all by regular publishers. Yeah. I self-publish in my online marketing business. I sell about half a dozen e-books, but I didn't write those. I hired people to write them. My name is not on them as the author. Their name is. And the other thing I sell is I sell audio CD albums as information products. How many of your books, the 70 books, have been sold? Do you know? Total? I don't know, but so 
certainly, if the average have sold 25,000 copies, it's in the 1.5 million or more. It's well over a million, but that's not a big deal because, again, if you only sold 10,000 each, you'd be up to 700,000. So, you know, I sold well over a million copies of my books, probably over 2 million. Are they in different languages as well? Well, they are. I mean, I don't really track that, but I've got editions that are in all kinds of languages. I don't keep track. I know we've got Chinese, Japanese, Spanish, whatever language they speak in Kuala Lumpur, you know, a bunch of different. Are you getting inquiries to do copywriting work from China and Japan? And no, other? I rarely do. I tend to confine my copywriting to the United States, Canada, the UK, and Australia. So I guess what I'm asking is, if you've got a million books out there, how many leads are these books producing for you? Well, a lot of them, of course, don't produce any leads because a lot of them have nothing to do with copyright. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I have a book. The title of it is the I Hate Kathy Lee Gifford book, and I don't get any inquiries from that. And I've got a lot of books like that. However, the answer is that between everything I've done in my life, books, articles, and just being around a long time, you know, I get one to two to three unsolicited good inquiries coming here every day of the year. Much more work than I could ever hope to handle. Of the stuff we get, we accept 20% of it. Okay, so what do you do with those? leads. You have colleagues that you refer over? Well, it depends on the situation. If we get a lead where I just think it's a bad quality lead, I wouldn't then give it to a colleague if I thought it was crap. That's true. Because you get leads from people that are just not good potential clients. So those I just say, I can't handle it. And if they say, do you know someone? I say no, because I don't want to wish bad stuff on my friends. If it's a lead that I don't want to take, they can't afford me, they're not a good fit for me, I'm too expensive. Then I will refer it. I keep a list of people, but I'm almost hesitant to tell you this because people listening, I would not advise them to email me to get on this list because it's already too large. Right, that's fine. But, you know, I have a list of people who I refer stuff to, and I give them referrals. And then there are people who will contact me, and I want them. They're a good potential client. They can afford me, but I tell them you got to wait, and they don't want to wait. Them I'm not giving referrals to. I want to train them to wait. If I can't do them for a year, I'd say, I understand you can't wait that long. I'll say to them, if I'm booked for three months, I'd say, well, now you can book me. It's June. You know, you want to book me for October. You can. And I don't want to give that lead away. Well, I notice on your site you make it a point to differentiate yourself by saying you do not take work and farm it to copy cups or sub-copywriters in your office. And there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of opportunities being sold to teach copywriters how to create copy cups and make a lot of money out of that. Why don't you do that? And can you give the listeners a brief background on what that's all about? Well, yeah, what you're referring to, of course, is one negative of freelance copywriting is like dentists. People say, oh, dentists make a lot of money, but the dentists have an old saying, you only can bill if you drill and fill. They only get paid for when they work, and a traditional freelance copywriter is that way. So what are your options? One option is to sell information products, write copy for your own products. Another option is to start an ad agency. A third option is to take on a lot of work and then subcontract it to other copywriters. And I have chosen not to subcontract work for two reasons. Number one is ethical. I'm not saying that anyone who does it is unethical. I don't think they are. But for me, when someone says, well, if I hire you, do you write all your own copy or do you farm it out? I want to be able to say I write every word which is true. And the second reason I don't do it is to me, I mean, I know people who do it and say it works for them. To me, it seems like a pain in the ass. You get somebody who's junior, well, they're not you. I've seen copy that some beginning people have written that's pretty good, but a lot of times I look at it and I say, it's worthless to me. I'd have to start all over again. So I don't even want to be involved in that. Okay. Here's a question from Darren Phillips. Bob, is it possible to teach the average person how to write killer copy? Well, here's the thing. On one hand, this isn't brain surgery. On the other hand, 
can you teach everyone to do it? You probably can teach average people to do it, but you can't teach everyone. There's a theory, you may have heard this, Michael Masterson from the American Writers and Artists Institute says, if you do anything for a thousand hours, you're going to get good at it. But I think, yes, but you have to have some type of inherent aptitude or interest. So there are people I've seen in various classes I've taken who they're either not going to get good at it or it would just be too much of an uphill battle. Having said that, there are a lot of people who become copywriters that you wouldn't have thought would have. I have a friend who does a lot of freelance work for Agora, and he had no interest in copywriting. His name's Paul Hollingshead, and he's a terrific copywriter. When they found him, he was stacking cans in a grocery store. He had no interest. I always thought copywriters would have to be people who were writers to begin with and interested in writing like I was, and that's how I came to it, but no. So, yeah, there are people who do it and surprise you. They decide to do it for a second career, they study it, and they do it. So can an average person? Yeah, I'm an average person, but can everyone? I say not everyone. Okay, here's a question from Perry. Bob, do you feel it's best to pick one writer to follow as a mentor and stick with him or her so as not to confuse your writing style, voice, or do you think no. it matters? Uh, no, I think it's best not to do that. There's all kinds of people out there. And usually what happens is you've got to read a lot of books or go to a lot of boot camps on any topic. Forget copywriting. I mean, this applies to copywriting also. Usually if you want to learn a subject, say copywriting, there's a lot of books, a lot of seminars, a lot of boot camps, a lot of websites, a lot of newsletters. You should go to a lot and read a lot. What will typically happen is for each person, 90% of their stuff either you'll reject, it doesn't work for you, or you already know it, but you'll pick up from each of them one gem that you wouldn't have gotten elsewhere. And that's how I've learned mine from various people. I don't want to name people, but there's a very famous copywriter out there who's teaching courses, and he's got massive amounts of material. And I read all his material, and I said, it's all good, but I knew all this, except there was one thing he does that I knew it, but I wasn't doing it. And now I do it all the time. Well, can you tell who that is and what it was? I'd rather not name him. Basically, his stuff is great. I'm just saying, for me, I knew a lot of it. And I wouldn't say it's the only thing I got from him, but the one thing that stood out is, traditionally in a direct mail package, you have your headline, you get attention, then you state the problem, then you start getting into the product, and then you build the credibility of the company, of the author. He says you should do pre-credibility. You should get some credibility up there right up front, because people are more skeptical today. So, like, if you take a look my product websites and I've got one on copywriting. We've got a program called The World's Best Kept Copywriting Secret and it says, now Bob Lai, comma, the man McGraw-Hill calls, quote, America's top copywriter, end quote, reveals, dot, dot, dot. Now I get into my credentials much later in the promotion and the promotion starts with the importance and the benefits of becoming a great copywriter and the content of what I teach, not who I am, but I get that up front real quickly because people look at something and they say, yeah, that's great, but there's a million of these. So right away, you want to differentiate yourself with some upfront early credibility. There's lots of techniques like that. I learned one or two things from this guy and one or two or three things from that guy. Like Michael Masterson at the American Writers and Artists Institute. I've worked with him for many years. He's been a client, taught me a lot of stuff. But the one thing that stands out, he has this little trick he has for headline writing, which you may have heard called the four U's. And it's a little mnemonic device to judge, is your headline strong? And it says basically, is your headline urgent, ultra-specific, useful and unique. It's not that that never has been said before, but that combination and that way has never been explained quite that way, and it's amazingly effective. How about personalities in writing? I mean, every writer has an individual personality. Do you see a style or a personality in your writing, in Clayton's writing, in a lot of the different copywriters? Can you identify that personality or style of writing like a thumbprint? I generally can, but 
What I'd say is more important is you want to have the personality of the person you're writing for and through. Now, if you're writing for Rush Limbaugh, you want to sound like Rush Limbaugh, not Bob Lai. Good answer. Okay, here's a question from Dave Rice from Canada. Bob, I find I have quite a difficult time doing my own copywriting. It would help if there were somewhere that I could go for examples of different industries or products that have worked for other people. Is there such a reference source? Yeah, it's basically the websites of successful copywriters. Today, people put their portfolios online. Sig Rosenblum was one of my early mentors. Mill Pierce. Here's what I would say. I actually don't keep copywriters' websites bookmarked because what I do is another method, and the method I suggested is good. You can do copywriters' websites. I keep very extensive swipe files. A swipe file is samples of controlled promotions. I subscribe to all the newsletters from the big publishers and buy nutritional supplements from some of the big marketers, so I get all the promotions, and the ones you get three times in a row, you know where the controls. Also, I know most of these people, so I can ask them and say, what can you send me? Sometimes I go to big publishers who know me. I say, can you just send me your most successful package you did this year? And I keep those and study those. Have you ever used Denny Hatch's resource? Denny Hatch's resource is good. If I didn't have these contacts myself, I would use it. But I can go to Nightingale Conan and ask, what's the best promo you did in the last 12 months? And she'll send it to me. But, yeah, you can look on Denny Hatch's mailing web service. It's an archive. All right, here's some questions about being a new copywriter. Question from Hugh in Australia. Bob, I'd like to know how the best way to get started is. I don't mean what books I should read, handwriting letters, etc. I mean, how can I start up a business even though I don't currently have any existing clients, testimonials, etc.? What steps can someone who is starting out take to start to build up a business client's credibility? When I started, I didn't know anybody in the industry. I didn't have any clients. I had no testimonials. I had no business lined up. I started cold. Now, I did have a couple of corporate jobs in my belt, and I had some samples from that. Assuming you had some samples of things he's written, do what I did. You can just pick up the phone and cold call, or what I did was I mailed a bunch of people, and there's other promotional techniques that you can use, but you can just put together a sales letter, mail it out to a list, and you can start getting clients. All right, so when the phone rings and someone calls you and they say, I got your letter, and you've got a qualified lead on the other phone, what are you looking for? What kind of process do you do to decide whether this is a good client? How do you handle that inquiry? There is a formula I teach called... It's not a swear word, mad FU. It doesn't stand for what you think it stands for. There's five characteristics that make someone a good client. So you run through the list of these, and if they make three or four or five of them, they're good. If they don't, they're not. Number one is mad is money. Do they have the money to afford me? Do you ask them right up front? Different people can say different things. When they contact me, I say, I'm interested in talking with you, but I am one of the most expensive copywriters you can hire. Is that a problem? And if they continue talking, I've sort of gotten that out of the way. That's number one, money. Number two is authority. Is this the person who can write the check or make the decision? How do you handle that? You say, is there anyone else that we need to talk to who are involved in making this decision? And they'll either say, no, I can buy this, or, yeah, my boss or my committee. And then you only talk to the committee. So it's money, authority, and the D is desire. Do they really want to have a successful promotion? Do they want good copy? And you can sort of tell that. That's sort of instinctual. There's no question I have for that. Then the F is fit, F-I-T. Are they a good fit for me? So when I started, since my background was industrial, someone called and they worked for a company that manufactured valves. That was a good fit. If they told me, oh, we sell cosmetics and jewelry, I didn't think it was a good fit. So I would kind of shy away from them. 
and the U is urgency. Do they really need this done within a specific time frame, and when is that, or are they just calling for their health? Okay, that's great. All right, here's a question from Andrew Cavanaugh, health writer out of Australia. Bob, what's the biggest mistake new copywriters make trying to get a new client? It's very simple, and it's directly related to what we just said. They don't do that mad FU pre-qualification. They treat every lead like they're a great lead. They chase after everyone when if they would have asked these simple questions, they would have found out in two minutes the guy has no authority to hire you and he has no budget and thinks a copy is worth nothing. You charge $1,000 a letter and you're selling him as hard as you can. It's a waste of your time. Sorry, give me a personal case study where you didn't follow this rule, maybe even in your earlier days, and what effect it had on you. It wasted half a day of my time. I was in New York City. A guy called me. He had a small ad agency in New Jersey. I was so excited because I wasn't getting many leads. And that's what happens when you start out. You know, you're not getting many leads and you get excited every time the phone rings, which is a huge mistake. So he called me and I was so buoyant and he said, why don't you come on out? So I rented a car, didn't ask him any questions, drove out and we talked and this dinky little ad agency in a crappy building and finally we had a nice meeting and he looked at my samples and they were okay and we were somewhat good fit and so we said, all right, well, one client I need a sales letter and at the time I was charging $500 for a letter and I told him, well, it's $500 and there's dead silence. He said, $500 for a letter? <laughs> and I said, well, what did you have in mind? He goes, $35. <laughs> to them, real advertising was magazine ads, and a letter was crap work. You know, I could have saved myself $30 for the renting the car and an hour driving out there, an hour meeting with him, an hour driving back. I wasted a half a day. All right. If I was a new, talented copywriter trying to get work with one of the big names like Agora Publishing, what approach would you suggest I do? If you're trying to reach a big-name direct response client, the best thing you could do would be to start with smaller, easier-to-get ones and do great work for them and send them something that's somewhat related to their industry or area that got great results. That would be one thing I would do. The second thing is I would suggest to them that, hey, you don't know me. I don't expect you to start me on a full package or a Magalog. Why don't you start me out on a small basis? Maybe let's do a renewal letter. And if you're happy with that, maybe I'll do an insert after that. Start with a small project and then move upwards. And then because they're testing you out, when they ask you how much, say, you tell me what you want to pay. So if you show them that you've done good work for others, gotten good results in direct marketing, especially for something at least related, and you're willing to start small on a test basis, and money's not a key issue right now, although you say to them, obviously I'm successful for you, I'd want to be paid what your successful writers get paid, that's the way to start. Okay, very good. If I was a talented copywriter and I wanted to be a copywriting cub, what would be the best way to approach one of the larger copywriters to do that? Well, there are people who do that regularly. Some of them are known. Some of them are not known. So Clayton Makepeace, Paris Lampropolis, for example, both of them do that. You could approach them. I think Jim Rutz used to. I don't know if he still does. And then I had a guy recently approach me, and he had apparently sent out a letter to a bunch of copywriters he got from some list, and I bet you that approach probably worked. I didn't really ask him. If I'd known you were going to ask me this, I would have asked him. Now, I didn't hire him because it was kind of embarrassing for him. I said, have you ever been to my website? He said, yes. I said, well, did you notice on the homepage it says I don't subcontract? So it was a mistake to mail to me. He didn't do his research, but he went to a mass list of copywriters, and I'm sure that worked. Okay, very good. Here's another question from Mary Hudson. Bob, if you were starting over as a copywriter, let's say you had no clients, no money, nowhere to live, and you were starting over, what specifically would you do today, tomorrow, this week, to generate an income as a copywriter? Well, first of all, I don't know if I'm quite answering her question. 
but my philosophy was always don't become a freelance copywriter unless you have at least one year or at minimum six months worth of living income in the bank because you don't want to be in the situation she described. If you are desperate and you absolutely need the income, you're going to do all the wrong things. You're going to take work for clients that are not a good fit for you, according to the Mad FU formula, that are lousy clients to work for, that pay bottom dollar, which is doing sales letters for $35 instead of 500 or 1000 So you basically want to have enough money that you can pick and choose. Your business will always be better if you can pick and choose clients rather than them choosing you. Okay. Here's a question from Karen Myers. Are there any good agents or agencies that represent freelance copywriters that you would recommend? There are a couple of agencies. I don't really keep up to date on this, but the big names are there's Thin Communications, S.S. and Frank, I-N-N, John and Kevin Finn, who represent copywriters, and a lot of copywriters have had great results with them. On Long Island, New York, there's the Copywriters Council of America, run by Roger Dexter. Those are the two major ones, as far as I know. There's another one, Direct Marketers on Call, that is fairly well known. And then there's a bunch of smaller ones that come and go. And so these agencies take a percentage of the... They all take a different percentage. The formulas are all different. I think the Copywriters Council takes 20%. I'm not sure what the others take or how it works. Bob, can you give us your best tips regarding copyrights? For example, when, if you retain the copyrights to materials you write, how do you do that with Very clients? simple. I never do. I say to the client, they own the copyright. It's their stuff. When they pay me, and as long as they can pay me, and if there's a royalty, continue to pay me the royalty, it's their stuff. They can do whatever they want under the terms of our agreement. There was a move or a belief that, hey, if you write it, you own the copyright, and you're just loaning it to them. That's certainly not their understanding. And my philosophy is always do your business in a way that the client comes out ahead. What advice would you have? Let's say you've got copywriters that are producing leads, they're getting work, but I'm sure every client isn't a picnic. What advice would you give a copywriter as their copywriting business matures in dealing with clients, in dealing with egos, in dealing with the ego of maybe the client who wants something that you don't recommend? What's your philosophy on that? The best advice I ever got was from my friend Jim Alexander, now retired, who ran a great business-to-business ad agency in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He said to me, Bob, I can deal with a client who is ignorant. I can deal with a client who is arrogant, but I cannot deal with one who is both. If someone is arrogant, but they know what the heck they're doing, keep them. You're going to learn a lot. If someone is ignorant, but they're willing to have you guide them, you can be successful. If you have a client who is both ignorant and arrogant, they don't know what they're doing, and they dictate to you how to write the copy, you should fire them. Okay, great. Do you have any personal case study or experience you could reference that? For that, I mean, I've done it all the time for many years. The best advice, which I don't follow myself, is to fire them just because they're ignorant and arrogant. I always felt I had to have more work in the pipeline so that not only did they not fit, but I didn't need them. I would only fire clients when I felt I was so flush with work that I could afford to. You really should do it at any time. You should never continue working with those people, but I would only do it when I got to the point where I felt I could afford to. So you've got a lot of clients that you're working with. How often does a client stay with you for repeat copywriting business? I can imagine three or four or five good clients who have successful businesses will use you over and over again. I would say that the rule of thumb that I have here and that I tell people to strive for, approximately 80% of your work should come from repeat business and 20% should come from clients you have not worked with before. 80% repeat, you make more money on the repeat business because you're familiar with the client and their personnel, their staff, 
and their products and their methods, but you don't want it to be 100% because you're going to tend to get bored. So I use the 80-20 rule. Sometimes it's 70-30, maybe sometimes it's 85-15. Okay. Never much more than a variation than that. All right, here's some questions about pricing structure. Question from Tom Bulldog Vargan. I'd like to learn more about structuring compensation for copywriting. Flat fee plus royalties. I'm still a bit lost with the pricing structure. Basically, although there are other people who do it differently, I usually work on a flat fee basis except when working for a client that is set up and accustomed to paying royalties. So the best royalty clients are people who are large volume mailers and consumer marketers. Specifically, they sell nutritional supplements, they sell home study courses, they sell investment newsletters and health newsletters because they're mailing in large quantities where they can afford to pay you the royalty. You know, if you're writing a package for Endocrinologist Today magazine and there's only 15,000 endocrinologists in the United States, the rollout potential of that mailing is very slim. They're not going to pay you a royalty. So let's say someone comes to you and they publish an investment newsletter. Their potential market is one or two million hard money investors, depending what lists they go to. They can mail one or two or three million packages a year if your package is successful. So in that case, you would charge an upfront fee plus what's called a mailing fee, which is you would get somewhere between a penny and five cents, but I normally get two or three cents, and more often than not, two cents per piece mailed when they roll out after the test. You know, they will test, let's say, 50,000 to start, and if your package is successful and then they roll out, on each one that they mail after that, you get two pennies which works out to $20,000 per million pieces mailed. Can you give us a successful case study with a client that you've done? You don't have to mention the client's name. Well, but I have a client. They sell a commodities trading course, and I wrote their mailing a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. three years ago, and I'm up to sixty-five dollars or $70,000 on that package. So they've mailed about three or four million. I guess however it works out to you. Yeah, I guess I'm about 80000 When do they cut you the check? Right when they mail? Or they don't cut you the check when they mail. They send you an email and say, well, our plan is we're going to roll out with 83,000 pieces, which means we owe you $3,222. Please email us an invoice, and we'll get it out right away. <laughs> who are you dealing with in that department? Is that accounting? Are you dealing with the marketing publisher or the marketing director? Okay. Here's a question from Dave Rice from Canada. Do you ever offer performance-based copywriting assistance as in ask for a percentage of the increased revenue? And if so, how do you structure it to be assured you'll get paid? No, I only do what I've just described which is these mailing fee royalties. The reason is I don't think it's a bad idea, but I've always said it's very difficult to track and make sure clients are knowing what they're actually making. I mean, some people tell me they do this all the time, but I don't really know what my client's sales are, and I hear it bandied about a lot, but I've never found that to work, especially with smaller companies. It's very difficult to know that you're getting an accurate figure. So I only like to do performance-based arrangements with major mailers that are in the business of paying royalties. Because if a company doesn't do it and you push them into it, they're going to look for a way not to do it. They're going to hope you forget. Then you're going to have to be chasing them all the time. Has that happened to you? Have you had a bad experience where you I'll agree? I'll a funny experience. I had a guy who said he wanted me to write a package, and I, this was years ago, and it was like 7000 bucks. And I said, you know, I wanted a mailing fee. And he goes, well, I'll give you a bonus. I'll give you 7000 now and 7000 if your package becomes the new control. So we mail out. My package beats the control by 50%. I send him an invoice. He goes, well, no, I'm not going to pay this invoice. I said, why not? He said, well, your package isn't the new control. I said, you told me it beat it by 50%. He goes, well, i got to do this three or four times before I'm sure. I didn't get paid for two years. Finally, he paid it. 
But that's my fault. My agreement said when it becomes the new control. Now it says when I beat your control by X percent or more. So do you have a file of all your copywriting agreements and contracts? And do you sign a contracts or a letter of agreements or what? They're confirmation forms. You know, they're not really formal legal contracts. You could call them letters of agreement. They're more like a standard form confirmation. You can actually see that on Bly.com. If you go to my website, Bly.com, click on methodology and click on terms and conditions, you'll actually see my standard agreement. They either sign it or they email it back and say, okay, we approve. And then when I have that and their check, we begin. And, yeah, we keep them on file. My assistant does that. All right, we're still on pricing. This may be a little bit repetitive, but maybe you'll have something new here. It's a question from Mark Spengnolo. How do you determine, Bob, the amounts and fees to charge a client for any specific assignment without it being perceived as too high or too low? I'm going to give you a real easy answer to that. And the answer is this. What you could do is you say to the client, let's say they want you to quote a price. What this guy could do is say to the client, Mr. Client, let me ask you a question. Do you have a budget for this project? Not what your budget is. Do you have a budget? And people will either say yes or no. If they say yes, you say to them, would you mind sharing with me what it is? If they say no, I wouldn't mind, and then they say, well, you know, my budget's five or $6,000, you know whether your fees are in the ballpark or not. You can tailor what you offer them accordingly. On the other hand, if they say, no, we don't have a budget, you then say, well, do you at least have a dollar figure in mind of what you'd like to pay? And many people who said they didn't have a budget in mind will say, well, I don't know, two, three thousand dollars So they'll give you some idea. Mm-hmm. And then based on what their budget is, you can say, well, I can do a Magalog for you because you have the budget for that. Or, well, I can't do a Magalog, but based on your budget, I could do an insert. Or I could do a sales letter. I could do an email blast or whatever. So you can take your quote within their budget. That way, you'll know that the quote you give them can be acceptable. All right, that's great advice. Get them to, to reveal it first. Get them to reveal it. Now, if they won't reveal it, there's another technique. If they won't reveal it, you give them not one price, but three. You give them three options. But my friend Andrew Linick, the copywriter, calls good, better, or best. So good might be, for this much money, I'll write two email messages for you. Better is, for this much money, I'll write two email messages and a conversion page. And for this much money, I'll write three emails, a conversion page, a pop under, and five banner ads. You give them different packages with different pricing. Then you say, do you want to choose the good, better, or best? And experience shows that most people will choose the middle option. All right. Here's another question from Ron Haas. Bob, do you require a signed contract? And if so, are there any special or unique provisions in your contract that you would recommend other freelance copywriters to use as well? Well, I don't want to recommend them because I'm not a lawyer and I can't give legal advice and I don't want to be responsible for someone using my provisions and then saying, well, I used it and I still didn't get paid, so I don't want to do that. But if he goes to bly.com and clicks on methodology and then clicks on terms and conditions, you can see my standard agreement is right on the website, and I require people either to sign it and fax it back or just to reply by email, we approve these terms. That's the end of part one with Bob Bly. Please continue to part two.